Well, that was excellent, amen? I'll tell you what, it, uh, it all but brings me to tears just to see children being taught the truth, amen? amen? Growing up to know and love and serve and honor the Lord. Now they have a special treat. We have Mr. Daniel here who's going to spend the rest of the time with our kids ministering to them, so it should be really neat for them as well. All right, well, let's open with a word of prayer and let's take a look at God's word this morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, we praise you, we worship you, Lord. You are a great and awesome God. And Lord, we thank you for the, that you are indeed the reason for the season. Lord, that you, you came and suffered and died that we might have eternal life. And we pray as we go to your word that you would be our teacher this morning. Lord, no one's here by chance. We're all here by divine appointment. Lord, I just pray that you minister to our hearts. Help us to be attentive to what you want to say to us. Lord, we thank you and we praise you. Lord, be with our precious children and those who work with them to prepare this, Lord. And I just thank you for the little hearts and for parents who are raising them to love and serve and honor you. We dedicate their lives to you, Lord. We ask these things in your holy and your precious name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Well, as you know, we go verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book through the Bible. But this morning we're going to do something different. In seven years that we've been here, I've never taught a Palm Sunday message, but I'm going to do it today. And the reason is that as I was preparing this study, it's interesting that in 2 Timothy chapter 4 that we will look at next week on Easter Sunday at the 10 o'clock service, we will look at the resurrection message at the sunrise service. I want to encourage you to come to that. But Palm Sunday is a significant time, a significant event, and as I was studying for 2 Timothy 4, the end of the text where Paul's talking to Timothy, he says to him, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Paul, speaking to a pastor, said, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. And you know what? Today, the cross of Calvary is becoming common, it's becoming questioned, and it's even being uh, spit upon by the world. And I'm going to be real direct with you this morning, and I know that's going to shock some of you. But the truth is that we need to never take the cross of Christ common. We need to never take it for granted. And so, turn your Bibles to Luke 19. And we're going to begin in verse 28, but before we do that, I want us to take a look not only at Palm Sunday, but the, the things that surrounded those events. But before we do, I want to take a few moments to talk to you about both the prophetic fulfillment and eternal significance of the events that happened during this week. Palm Sunday is one week before the resurrection of our Savior. And there are some very significant events that happened between those times. And we're going to look at three of them, uh, and when we get to the text, we'll get, we're going to begin in verse 28. We'll look at the triumphant entry, we're going to look at Jesus weeping over Jerusalem, and we're also going to see him going to the temple, and how he responds when he finally does come into Jerusalem. But before that happens, I want to say that I was preparing this message, and my dad called me and shared with me an article, some of you may have seen it, in the Sentinel yesterday. And there's the editor, I don't know if you know the editor for the Sentinel, his name is Don Miller, and he's a Christian, be praying for him. And he often talks about Jesus and he gives editorials talking about the Lord and then he opened up this yesterday's uh, there's a whole section of people's responses and one of the men responded and I don't want to go into all the details because it'll just make you as mad as it made me but he basically this one man said that Christianity is a farce it's a hoax your icon is a joke only those who are are, have, are simple-minded, could ever believe such stupidity, and he said that Jesus dying on the cross is no more significant than a, than a hog being slaughtered on an altar. And I read that, and I got righteously angry. 
But I also say this, I want us to pray for this man. I want to pray that God will open his eyes that the hounds of heaven will hunt that brother down. Amen? Because he needs Jesus, doesn't he? That man needs to be saved. And so we can edit this out of the tape for the radio later, but his name's in the paper, so I'm going to tell you what it is. His name is Jack Ferguson. Let's pray for him. Amen? You know, let's pray for him right now. Heavenly Father, we lift up this man to you, Lord, and we know that it's the enemy that has blinded him. Father, open his eyes to the truth of who you are. Lord, it's when I read things like this that my heart is pierced at your incredible grace and mercy, that with people shaking their fist at you, as they did 2,000 years ago, that you continue to show grace and you continue to wait till that last person is saved. Lord, we thank you for the grace you've shown us. We pray as we go to your word this morning that you, Lord, would be our teacher. We ask these things and we pray for this man. Open his eyes. I pray, Lord, for divine appointments. I pray, Lord, that we might meet him in the grocery store. Lord, I pray, Lord, that there'd be an opportunity for us to share the truth with him and you'd bring other believers around him. Just open his eyes. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We don't overcome evil with evil. We overcome evil with good. Amen? Amen? That's what the Bible says. So, I want to say this. The Bible's under attack, and one of the things he said was, oh, it's like every other book that was written, and your God's like every other God. Let me make it very clear, and I pray that you leave here today understanding that is absolutely not true. You know, there are many, quote, books that claim to be divine. There are many men who have come who claim to be the path to heaven. But you might say, maybe you were here, maybe you were invited to watch the play, the program with the kids, and you don't even believe in the Bible. Why should I believe in a book? that was written, some of it 2,000 years ago, some of it as much as 3,500 years ago. Why should I believe that book? Why, how is it any different than any other divine writings written by other men? How can I know for sure that its words are true? Why should we put our faith in Jesus Christ alone? What about all the others who came and claimed to be messengers of God? While we can spend the next 10 years answering that question, I want to take just a few minutes to do it. And I want us to look at the events on the first Palm Sunday 2,000 years ago. But the first thing we must understand is how divinely knit together God's Word is. You need to understand that Jesus Christ says He is the Word. The Word of God reveals to us the God of the Word. Amen? And unlike all the other books and all the other writings that are out there, is that God's Word speaks to us of the person of Jesus Christ, and He fulfilled the Word that was written. It's not him writing things in the past, but there's prophetic truth that proclaims who Jesus would be. In John 1, 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then in John 1, 14, it says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus is the Word, and he is the fulfillment of prophecy. Some of you might be thinking, well, prove it. Prove that he's God then. Well, you've heard me say it many times. So you can hear it one more. The Bible is 66 books written by 40 authors on three continents in three languages over 1,500 years with one central theme and no contradictions. And how is that possible? Because God wrote it. Unlike all the other books filled with contradictions, people have tried for 2,000 years to tear the Word of God apart. And those who look at it and really look at it with an open mind, seeking to try to destroy it, you know what you call those people today? Christians, because they get saved. Because if you look at the Word of God and you have an open heart to see what it says, you can't help but see Jesus. The Word of God has been proven 100% accurate scientifically, historically, archaeologically. It cracks me up. They'll say, oh, these people groups didn't even exist. That proves the Bible wrong. And then they keep digging. 
and they find the people group they say didn't exist. Then they point to another one, well, this person never existed, and they keep digging, and they find that yet again the Bible is true. Science doesn't prove the Bible, the Bible proves science. Scientists are wrong all day long, the Word of God never is. And so the, it's the living, breathing Word of God. And again, the Word of God proves itself over and over and over to be true. Every time they turn over a shovel of dirt in Israel, the Bible is proven yet again. But let's look at some more clearly seen facts, just in case you're still, okay, we can examine it historically and archaeologically, but I love to look at it prophetically because people can't argue with that at all. You know what, there's over 300 Old Testament prophecies that speak about the Messiah. And the only way that you could fulfill one of them is you'd have to be God. And yet others come along saying they're the Messiah, some even saying that they are the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies, but as we will see as I share just a few of them with you, there's only one who could come. In Isaiah 9 it tells us that God would come to earth in human form. This was 700 years before Jesus came. It says in Isaiah 9, For us, unto us a child is born, a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Who's that? That's Jesus. He is the fulfillment because he's called the Son of God. And later, as I quoted earlier, he is the Word became flesh. In Isaiah 7, it says he will be born of a virgin. In Micah 5, 2, it says he would be born in Bethlehem. In Isaiah 16, he would be born in the house of David. In Hosea 11, he would come out of Egypt. In Isaiah 9, he would be from Nazareth. So though born in Bethlehem and called out of Egypt, he would be raised in Nazareth. In Jeremiah 31, his birth would trigger a massacre of infants. And we know that happened when Herod had all the children under the age of two put to death. In Isaiah 29 and 35, it says that his ministry would include miracles, that the deaf would hear, the blind would see, the lame would walk, and the mute would speak. Who fulfilled that? That would be Jesus. In Isaiah 53, it says he would be despised and rejected by men. In Psalm 69 and Isaiah 49, it says he would be hated without a cause. In Psalm 118, it says he will be rejected by the rulers of the day. And in Psalm 69, it says he will be rejected by his own brothers. Some of the prophecies are those that will happen in this upcoming week that we commemorate right now. The prophecies speaking of the one who could take away the sins of all mankind, the very one the children were talking about. In Zechariah, it said he would come in, the triumphal entry, we'll see that this morning, riding on a donkey. In Isaiah 53, it said he will take away the sins of the people. And again, if I can encourage you with something, go home and read Isaiah 53. Great text to show any Jewish person. Anybody who believes in the Old Testament, have them read Isaiah 53 and Psalm 22 and ask them, who in the world is that? It is Jesus all over it. You can't read those scriptures and not see Jesus unless you just absolutely refuse. Crucifixion described in such a perfect way hundreds of years before the crucifixion, the, the act of crucifixion even existed. In Isaiah 53, it also says, He will not answer when accused. He will be killed with the wicked and buried with the rich. Jesus was crucified between two thieves and he was buried in a rich man's tomb. In Zechariah 11, it says that the Messiah would be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. In Zechariah 13, it says his followers would be scattered. In Psalm 22, it says they will cast lots for his clothes. 
In Psalm 34, none of his bones will be broken. In Psalm 16, he will be raised from the dead. Who alone fulfills every one of these prophecies and hundreds more? His name is Jesus. That's it. Amen? And you know what? I know I'm, I get excited when I pe see people say, oh, uh, you know, a, a, a hog slaughtered on an altar is no different. Man, we need to, pr man, keep praying for that guy. Because I, I got to pray for him or I will harm him, you know? <laughs> because you know what? When people attack our Savior, doesn't it just grip your heart? It just grips my heart. And it breaks my heart. Jesus perfectly fulfilled them all, proving himself to be God. And this morning, we're going to commemorate that beginning of that final week with Jesus' triumphant entry and a week of the greatest trials and suffering and sacrifice in human history. And yet, a time when he never ceased to be in control. Here's what I want you to remember. That in the, this Passion, it's called Passion Week by some, but you know, we did, the final week of Jesus' life on this earth, he was fully in control. With everything that happened, he was fully in control. And he went freely and willingly to the cross out of his love for us. While our Lord enters triumphantly into Jerusalem, as we will see this morning, Palm Sunday, and in the end he resurrects gloriously, as we will see next week, if you come to the sunrise service with the resurrection of our Savior, the time in between was marked by betrayal and incredible suffering. I want to encourage you to come next Friday night, Good Friday, when we show the Passion. You know what? It's a hard movie for me to watch, but I need to watch it again. Amen? Amen. You know what? He went through it for us. We should be able to watch it and realize the greatest act of love in the history of all mankind. So the order of events during that Passion Week or that final week, the order of events, the triumphal entry... Then he was anointed by Mary. And interestingly enough, she took the most valued possession she had and she poured it out on our Savior. And you know what? She was doing it, again, this is what they did when they buried somebody. This was a dowry, not even realizing what a sweet fragrance this would be to the Lord and how it would be, again, a sweet fragrance in the presence of all the people, but a picture of what was about to happen. He instituted the Lord's Supper. This is during that, that last week when he told them for the first time they understood what that Passover feast was all about. He, the, he, Jesus was betrayed by Judas. He was arrested in Gethsemane. If this doesn't prove he's in charge, nothing would. Because when they arrested him, they came to arrest him. Je Judas kissed him on the cheek. They asked him if he was Jesus, and he said what? I am. I am. And what happened to all the soldiers? They fell backward on the ground, straight back, at his word. He said, I am. And they fell down. He could have said, you're toads, and they all would have been, right? <laughs> he's God. He can do anything he wants, and yet... He, they all fell back. I'm amazed that after they fell down, they got up and arrested him anyway. I'm trying to figure that one out. But again, it was still our, all part of God's plan. And it proves that he indeed is in control. And he did it not because man grabbed him, but because he loves us. He was then scourged. He was mocked. He was crucified. The sins of all mankind were placed upon him. At one point, he says, my, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. He said, my God, my God, because all of my sin and all of your sin was placed upon our Savior and he knew separation from the Father. The earth quaked, the veil was torn, Jesus was buried, the tomb was guarded, but guess what? It was Friday, but Sunday's coming, amen? amen. 
And you know what? On Sunday morning, he rose from the dead. He triumphed over sin and death. You know what? A hog slaughtered on an altar can't do that. He proved himself to be God when he triumphed over sin and death. And we must understand that in his sovereignty, this is all a part of his plan. And as we saw in last week's text, we have divine appointments, not only to share the gospel and to use our gifts, but to suffer persecution. The Bible says in 2 Timothy 3, Yes, all who desire to live godly in Christ will suffer persecution. These divine appointments were ordained by God before the foundation of the world. Now... Brings us to the text. And guess what? Jesus entering into Jerusalem was a divine appointment. And if the Jews had been reading their Bibles, they would have been lined up for days waiting and trying to get a good seat. Now some of them realized it and some of them did come. But as you know, if, you, if you're a, a prophecy buff at all, it's interesting that in the Old Testament, the prophecy of Daniel, it says this. That from the time of of the command to rebuild the temple, or the city, excuse me, rebuild Jerusalem, from the day that that command goes forth, there will be 483 years, or 69 sevens it says in the text. 483 years until the time when the Messiah would come, when he would enter into the very city that was being rebuilt. So guess what? It, it's not by chance that in Scripture it tells us that King Artaxerxes commanded to rebuild Jerusalem on March 14, 445 B.C. If you take 483 years and you multiply it times 360 days, which is the Roman calendar at the time, you come out with 173,880 days. 173,880 days after March 14, 445 B.C., Jesus rode in on a donkey on April 6, 32 A.D. The Bible rocks. Amen? You know what? No other word. What, what incredible prophecy. Uh, to the day, 173,880 days later, he came in just as been prophesied by Daniel the prophet. Man, I love the Bible. And I just, I mean, when people are so ignorant, when they say the Bible is not always just a book, have you read it? No, not really. Therein lies the problem, amen? <laughs> Nobody who's read it can say it's just a book. Anybody who's really spent time in the Word of God. So talk about your divine appointments. He's coming into Jerusalem, and it had been planned before the foundation of the world, and prophesied hundreds of years before, and there was a 173,880-day clock that had been set from the command to rebuild the city until Jesus came. Boy, I love this. Good stuff. So, if you're a note taker, we're going to pick up in verse 28. And I titled the message this morning, The Heart of Our Savior. Three points. He faithfully obeys the Father's will. Number two, he weeps for the lost. And number three, he deals harshly with hypocrisy. So, the heart of our Savior. He faithfully obeys the Father's will. He weeps for the lost. And he deals harshly with hypocrisy. Let's begin in verse 28 of Luke 19. Look what it says there. We'll begin looking at the heart of our Savior. As he, again, he faithfully obeys the will of the Father. It says this. And when he had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. Now, this is the beginning of his triumphal entry. Now, if you've been to Israel, those of you who've been to Israel with us, you know that Jerusalem is up on a hill. And when you go to Jerusalem, you absolutely do go up to Jerusalem. 
You know, it's amazing. We were down at the Dead Sea and we drove to Jerusalem and, and I hope I'm not off. I think there was maybe a 30 degree or 40 degree temperature change because the Dead Sea is one of the lowest spots on the planet, maybe the lowest. And there you have the, you know, Jerusalem up on a hill and it goes from being very hot to being very cold quickly. And so he's headed up to Jerusalem and this was all a part of God's divine plan. Now understand this, that when he was going up to Jerusalem, it was a specific time. What was happening was the people were gathering together for Passover. Now Passover was the remembrance of their deliverance out of bondage in Egypt. Remember, they were in bondage for 400 years. And God sent Moses, his deliverer. And when Moses came, Moses, God used him, and they were delivered out of bondage. But remember, it took numerous plagues. And it wasn't until the seventh and final plague took place that they were delivered. Now, what was that? What was the final plague? The final plague was the spirit of death came down upon them. And when the spirit of death came down, here's what the Lord said. You, you know, get, the word came to the Jews. Here's what you need to do. You need to go and you need to take the blood of a lamb, a firstborn spotless lamb. They would bring the lamb into their home. They would make sure that it was without defect. And then after a number of days, after a week, they would slit the lamb's throat. Now, after, actually after four days. And they would slit the lamb's throat and they would take its blood. And it said the blood had to have, they had to take hyssop branches. And they had to take the blood and they had to put it on the top, the bottom, and both sides of the doorpost. And anybody who had taken the blood of the lamb and applied it, the angel of death would pass over. That's where pass over comes from. And they would be delivered from death. Now, what in the world is that a picture of? The blood in the shape of a cross. And the angel of death would pass over. Guys, you know what? The blood of the lamb must be applied. When, when John the Baptist saw Jesus, he said, Behold the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. All the lambs that had been slaughtered were pointing to the one who would come who would take away our sins. And that's why you and I don't slaughter lambs anymore. Because the lamb of God has taken away the sins of the world. And he's coming in to Jerusalem at the time of Passover as they are celebrating their deliverance out of bondage through the blood of the Lamb, and He is coming to be the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. The Bible, yet again, rocks. Amen? Amen. Nothing happens by chance. This exact day, this exact time, it was all a part of God's perfect plan. 1,500 years later, the Jews were still looking for a deliverer, and the very Messiah was coming into their midst. Again, the place was stirred up with people, People had come from great distances. The, the city was you know, at a fever pitch. And it was at that time that Jesus came. Verse 29. And it came to pass when he knew, drew near Bethphage and Bethany at the mountain of Olivet that he sent two of his disciples. Now these are small towns a couple miles east of Jerusalem. And those of you who have been with us again, you've been on the Mount of Olives. At the base of the Mount of Olives is the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus would be arrested later. And it's, it's interesting that as Jesus was coming down, he would be coming down and he would be, again, on a hill and then go down and come up into the city. What's interesting is later when they came to arrest Jesus, they were coming and they were carrying torches to come and get him. And if you've been in the Garden of Gethsemane, and let me encourage you, we're going to Israel next year, you can go and you can be there. If you look from the Garden of Gethsemane and you see the eastern gate where they would have come out to arrest him, Jesus would have seen them coming for miles. And they're carrying torches at night. 
And you know what? Jesus did not run away. Why? Because it was appointed for him to go to the cross for you and me. And he waited there. And they came. And what's interesting, when they came out to arrest him, and then when they took him back over to crucify him, all the blood of the lambs that had been shed was now coming down and going through that, that river there, and it was filled with the blood of the lambs. So the Lamb of God was crossing over the blood of the lambs as he was going to be crucified. Man, the Bible, all of it, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. May we never take it for granted. May we never take it lightly what he did for us. Now look at this. He proves himself to be God because he knows everything, even the small details. Look at verse 30. Saying, go into the villages, he says to two of his disciples, opposite you, where as you enter, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever set. Loose it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, why are you loosing it? Thus you shall say to him, because the Lord has need of it. Now, Jesus knows everything. And sometimes people try to say when Jesus came to earth, he ceased to be God. Well, that's not true. Because he still knew everything. Amen? And he still performed miracles. And he still could have stopped the proceedings anytime he wanted. But he was submitted to the will of the Father. That's the heart of our Savior. He was one who was submitted. And so he sends them to go and get a colt. Now why? Well, it's interesting. In Zechariah 9.9 it says, Rejoice greatly, O daughters of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just in having salvation, lowly and riding a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. You know what? It was foreordained he'd come in riding on a donkey. And he's sending them out to get the very donkey that had been prophesied over 500 years earlier that he would be riding in on. It is interesting to see also, it says there, of that colt, no one has ever said on it. Now, I don't know about you, but if I, I don't want to be the first one to ever sit on an animal that's never been set on. How about you? <laughs> now, again, this proves that he's God and he's in control and he has power even over the animals. Amen? You know, donkeys actually do better than most people in the Bible. It's true. Balaam, remember Balaam's donkey? Remember? His donkey saw the angel turn around and said, Dude, do you not see what's in front of you? <laughs> right? Balaam had no clue when the donkey was talking. What cracks me up is Balaam answered the donkey back. I don't know, I'm thinking that would be enough, right? Start arguing with the donkey. But here we have, again, that this animal was submitted to the Lord in a way that we need to be submitted to the Lord. Lord, do with me whatever you will. Now look what it says here. Because the Lord has need of it, so go. So those who were sent went their way, and found it just as he said to them. Imagine the incredible blessing it must have been for these two apostles called by God to perform a task for his kingdom. They obediently go out, and after they step out, they see the fulfillment of God's promise. Boy, this is an example for us. God has a calling for us. He gives us instruction, and it's not until we faithfully obey that we get to see the promise fulfilled. They said, okay, go find a donkey. Well, they didn't say, well, Lord, why do you need one? Why a donkey, Lord? Oh, horses are better. Don't you know horses are faster? Camels are taller. Lord, why a donkey? They didn't say that. Yes, Lord. And they went and they found it just as the Lord said. God, give us that heart to just say, Lord, my life is yours. Do with it as you will. Obedience is the highest form of worship. And again, we see obedience not only on behalf of the people who, the the apostles who went out to get the coat, cult, but also those who owned it. 
Because they too were heeding the voice of the Lord. Verse 34. And they said, the Lord has need of it. Now again, they could have argued. What Lord are you talking about? Who is this Lord you're asking of? What do you mean? Praise God. When faced with opposition as the Lord predicted, they spoke according, not to their own wisdom. They didn't try to negotiate. They just spoke the word of God. What an example for us. When we interact with the world, don't use your own wisdom. Don't try to negotiate. Just share with them the truth of God's word. Amen? Because God's word will transform their life. Your words won't. They didn't try to give them some money. They didn't try to negotiate. They didn't try to, well, bro, don't you understand? Let me tell you about, they just spoke what the Lord told them to speak. And again, can you imagine any greater use of this colt, this donkey, than to be ridden by the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords as he enters into Jerusalem as the true King of the Jews, on his way to the cross, where he would pay the price for the sins of all mankind. As Jesus' followers today, may we too respond in obedience to the calling he's placed upon our lives. May we hold lightly to the things that he's put in our hands. And may we be joyfully willing to give him the use of anything that he has given us. What greater use can there be for God-given talents and resources than to use them to impact eternity? Amen? Amen. And it's so easy for us to feel put out when we feel like God wants to use us some way. Well, don't you know I'm, I'm tired? You know what would better use your time than to use it for the Lord? Amen? Well, this, this is my money. I worked hard for it. What better use? It's his money, not yours. Amen? And what better use than to give it for his kingdom? Now, you know if you come to Calvary Chapel more than once, we don't, we don't talk about money here. We're not about it. Where God guides, God provides. Amen? We don't pass an offering. Why? Because we don't want anybody to ever give because they feel like someone's twisting their arm. And if anybody twists your arm, you should never give. Don't be guilted into giving. It should be joyful. But you know what? Whatever we have is the Lord's. Our time, our talents, our resources, all of it. And praise God, because there's no greater way to use it. So he demonstrates his greatness in that he is able to just sit on this, this donkey and ride in. Now again, this is Palm Sunday. Then look what it says. Verse 35. Then they brought him to Jesus, and they threw on their clothes on the colt, and they set Jesus on him. And as he went, many spread their clothes on the road. Spreading one's garments on the street was an ancient act of, of, of homage reserved only for those in the highest royalty. And it suggested that there were those who were there recognized his claim to be king of the Jews. Now, the palm branches have two meanings. We know in Scripture, from Revelation 7-9, they symbolize the joy and salvation of a royal tribute to Jesus that is coming in the future. It says this, after these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one could number, of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and the Lamb. That's coming, you guys. A time is coming when they will hold out these palm branches, but you ought to understand something. While it had a future revelation that would be fulfilled, these palm branches meant something different to the ones who were waving them. Because you need to understand that in that day, the branches of palm trees had come to mean something else. Almost two years earlier, when, the, when Judas Maccabees entered a nine-year battle and overthrew the Syrians and destroyed wicked Antichus Epiphanes, by the way, Antichus Epiphanes, you know what he did? A picture of the abomination of desolation. He took and slaughtered a pig and made 
the priest drink its blood. And isn't it interesting that here we are 2,200 years later and a man in the Santa Cruz Sentinel yesterday said a slaughtered pig is as good as what Jesus did on the cross. There's nothing new under the sun. Same today as then. The people celebrated his defeat, the defeat of Antiochus Epiphanes, by pulling down palm branches and waving them. They then put palm branches on the back of all their coins from that day forward. So for them, a palm branch symbolized their deliverance from political oppression and military brutality. So what are they really saying when they're waving these branches? Jesus, come deliver us from the Romans. Jesus, come and overthrow the government. They cried out, as we see in, in the other Gospels, in Mark, Hosanna, which means save now, we pray. Save us now. Save us militarily. Save us politically. Save us. But their motivations were all wrong. The kingdom of our Father acknowledges Jesus as being the Masonic, the, the, the promised son of David. And in Matthew, they called him son of David. The crowd is crying out, and they're crying out, but they're crying out for not a Messiah to deliver them spiritually, but for a political leader to deliver them physically. Guys, they wanted someone who they could shout at at a parade, but not one who they would kneel before at the cross. Guys, what Jesus are you serving? Are you serving one who will give you the things of this world? Are you serving one you can manipulate in the here and now? Is your focus on him so you can have a good life now? Again, he came that we might have life and life more abundant. But guys, it's not that we have Jesus in the sky so we can manipulate the Father and get what we want here and now. But it's kneeling before him, realizing we're sinners in desperate need of a Savior and crying out for salvation. That's who Jesus is. He's our deliverer from sin. And sadly, they were looking for military might. When what's better? Spiritual deliverance is eternal. Uh, you know, a new general coming in would be temporal. When Jesus didn't fulfill their physical and political desires, the Hosanna, save now we pray, became crucify him. In a matter of days. They went from save now we pray when they found out he was not going to go in immediately and attack the Romans and give them victory and put them in power and give them the things of this world they desired. Hosanna, save now we pray you, turn to crucify him. Just a matter, a short matter of days. It says there in verse 37, Then as he was draw now drawing nearer the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice, for all the mighty works they had seen. Now again, notice the focus of the crowd. It was on the miracles they had seen. And again, praise God for the miracles. But guys, if all we see Jesus for is the miracles, we have not realized that we need to have the kind of relationship where we realize our own sin and need for a Savior. Guys, I'm much more encouraged when I see brokenness than when I see rejoicing. Again, we should rejoice over our salvation. Amen? But we need to come broken first before we can rejoice. It's not until we see we are sinners that we will see our need for a Savior. And if you didn't know it, and there were a lot of visitors here, and I love you and God bless you, you're all sinners. Amen? Amen. Me too. We're all sinners in need of a Savior. Amen? Amen? And so the point is, until we realize that, we've missed it. And these guys had totally missed out on who the Messiah was. But they were rejoicing for all the wrong reasons when they should have been repenting. It should have been broken before 
the Savior of the universe. Overthrow the government, we're praying, we're crying out. Verse 38. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. This is a quote from Psalm 118. But we know that the real motivation, and we know from Mark's account, they sing Hosanna from Matthew's account. They cried out, Son of David. They threw out all the terms for a Messiah, every single one of them. But they were not looking for the right Messiah. The Messiah they were looking for was one who would give them what they wanted here and now. They were looking for a conquering Messiah, not a redeeming Savior. Now, it is interesting that he was riding in on a donkey. We know that the donkey to to the Jewish people is an animal of peace and humility. And Jesus is the Prince of Peace coming in on the back of a donkey, which is an animal which represents humility and peace. Now, what's interesting, the next time Jesus comes to Jerusalem, he's not going to be riding a donkey. The Bible tells us he'll be riding a white horse of judgment followed by ten thousands of his saints. That's in Jude 14. Guess who those saints are that are coming behind Jesus when he comes back? Us. And you know what? He came as the Prince of Peace, but he's going to come as a righteous judge. It's better to come before him as the Prince of Peace. Amen? It's better to come before Him and to allow Him to bring peace between sinful man, you and me, and holy God. That's why He came to earth. And some of the Pharisees called Him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But He answered and said to them, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. See, they were all calling Him all the names of the Messiah, and the Pharisees, the super religious guys, the guys who are really religious and spiritually dead. By the way, you can go to church your whole life seven days a week for a hundred years and not know God. Guys, it's not about religion, it's about a relationship. It's not about you being really spiritual. It's not about you attaining a higher level of consciousness. It's about each one of us seeing again, I know this is a common theme today and I'm going to keep repeating it, that we are sinners in desperate need of a Savior. And that Jesus is the only one who can pay the price because He's the only one who's God. He's the only one who triumphed over sin and death. Amen? He's the only one who could pay. He's the only one who would pay. He's the only one who did pay. Amen? And praise God for His grace. Now what's incredible is they hear Him saying, Son of David. Oh, that's a messianic term. Hosanna. Oh, I'm supposed to say that to the Messiah. Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. Oh, that's for the Messiah. So the Pharisees, the spiritual guys, say to Jesus, rebuke them, tell them to quit calling you the Messiah. And Jesus doesn't say, yeah, you're right. You know what he says instead? I tell you that if those should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. You know what? Jesus is going to be glorified either by us or by the rocks. Amen? He's going to be magnified. His name is going to be lifted up. He's going to be glorified. But you know what? I pray that we cry out so the rocks don't have to. Amen? May we not be ashamed of him. May we have great boldness. And they're telling them, you keep them quiet. You know what? There's religious and political people today telling us to keep the Christians quiet. Quit proclaiming Jesus Christ to be God. Knock it off, Don Miller, editor of the Santa Cruz Sentinel. You need to stop it. Who do you think you are? You must have no intellect to believe that. You know what? The Bible tells us that the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Amen? Today is April Fool's Day. Right? I had a bumper sticker that said, April 1st, National Atheist Day. 
The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Amen? So, guess what? The one who points and calls someone foolish is really foolish when they reject Almighty God. Is there anything more foolish than that? Nothing. The atheists who came to watch the play are all mad at me now, but you know what? We love you. Amen? We're glad you're here. So, you know what? First of all, we see him now falling in obedience to the will of the Father. That's our Savior's heart. But notice this too. He weeps for those who had rejected him. Look at verse 41. Now as he drew near, he saw the city and wept over it. Jesus weeps over Jerusalem. While the crowd was rejoicing, Jesus was weeping. The second time he had wept openly in the Bible. The first time was at the tomb of Lazarus. Why? Because he saw what death did, what sin did. It brought about death. But then this time, he weeps because he saw how a nation had wasted its opportunity to know him. Their spiritual blindness. They should have known he was the Messiah. God had given them his word, and prophets had prepared the way. But their religious activity and their lives showed that they had not been really touched by God. You know, it's interesting. They're, cry- they're praising his name, and he's weeping for them. You know why? Because man looks on the outward appearance, and God looks on the heart. People can be as religious as they want to be outwardly, but God really knows what's in their heart. You hear they are praising His name, calling Him the name of the Messiah, and He's weeping. Why? Because He knows they don't really mean it. And He knows when we don't really mean it. He knows when we pretend to be Christians. He knows when we've taken it only by name. Guys, it's not enough to know about God. It's not enough to believe that there is a God. We must come to a point where we put Him on the throne of our lives. When we invite His Holy Spirit to rule and reign within us and to guide our every single step. To make Him more than Savior, but to make Him Lord. Amen? He's either Lord of all or He's not Lord at all. Guys, we've got to move past calling ourselves Christians by name and start living like it. And where people recognize Jesus in us. We don't have to tell anyone we're a Christian. They just know it by the way we love each other, by the way we stand for the truth, by the lives of integrity that we live. And when we blow it, how broken and repentant we are over our sin. Guys, I'm so concerned that there'd be somebody who calls Calvary Chapel Santa Cruz their church home that never comes to know Christ. Guys, I'm going to heaven, and I want to see every one of you there. Amen? Amen? Now, I'm not going because I'm the pastor. I'm a sinner in need of a Savior too. Amen? I'm just one beggar leading another beggar to the bread. And I can tell you this, nothing in this world compares to knowing Jesus Christ. There's nothing better, there's nothing greater, there's nothing close. It's as good as it gets. You're here by a divine... I thought I was coming to see a play. (laughs) The Lord loves you enough to shake this pastor's heart in the middle of the night to change the message because he knew you were going to be here. And the Bible says today is the day of salvation. The terrible judgment that was coming to the nation, the city, and the temple, it grieved the heart of our Savior. You know what? In AD 70, not many years from now, from this time, just 36, 37, 38 years from the time that Jesus is weeping over Jerusalem, the Romans came, killed 600,000 Jews, took thousands more captive, destroyed the temple and the city, all because they had missed their Messiah. Guys, don't miss Jesus. Amen? Don't miss Him. Look what it says. If you had known, verse 42, even you, especially in this, your day, the things that made your, make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. 
For days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you and close you in on every side, and level you and your children within you to the ground. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another, because you did not know the time of your visitation. He's saying, I'm weeping because I know you're going to reject me. I know what the days, these day, the next five days hold for me. I know that you're crying out Hosanna, but you're going to be screaming crucify him. And I know that the end result is going to be that you're going to be, the world, the Romans are going to come upon you and there's going to be destruction. Why does the Lord weep? Because he knows that there are those who call him by name, who will cry out and rejoice in his name, who never really knew him, and judgment truly is coming. Now we don't hear that much in the church today. Which guys, you need to be warned of it so you don't have to experience it. Amen? You know, the cross of Calvary is either, it's either the most joyous event in human history or it's the greatest judgment that you'll face for eternity. One or the other. And all depends on what you do with Jesus Christ. Now lastly, look how he deals harshly. The heart of our Savior. He deals harshly with hypocrisy. I want you to see this. This is our loving God. He loves us so much. He'd rather die than live without you. He's willing to obey the will of the Father completely. He weeps over even one person being lost. But at the same time, because He is perfect, holy, righteous God, there must be judgment for sin. If we allow one sin in heaven, He's got earth part two. Amen? There can be one sin brought this whole disaster. There can be no sin in heaven. None. But yet we're all sinners, so we can't go unless we allow someone else to pay the price for us. And that's what Jesus did. But notice... When he comes into the temple, now notice where he goes. He comes into to Jerusalem, and he doesn't go first to the government officials. He doesn't go first to the, you know, to the unsaved people, to the people who are rejecting his name and blaspheming his name. Where does he go first? To the people who are called by his name. To the Jews, the people that he had, again, come to redeem unto himself. Those who are the who believed in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I believe if Jesus came to earth today, I doubt he would go to the White House. I doubt he would go in. You know where I think he'd go first? The church. Because we're his kids, amen? And we ought to be living like it. And I think he would come first to us and say, guys, you know me. You're my children. Start following me. And maybe he's, by his Holy Spirit, telling us that this morning. Start following me. Verse 45. Then he went into the temple and he began to drive out those who bought and sold in it. Sadly, what had happened is his father's house had become a place of making money. Now, we don't see that today. You don't watch any Christian television if you didn't get that at all. Here's the point. So often today we see this thing where people are making money in Jesus' name. Boy, does that grieve the heart of God. You know, some people look at it as a, a lotto ticket. And you know what, guys? The Bible says, let not many of you be teachers. Because you're going to stand accountable for Almighty God one day for every word that comes out of your mouth. And sometimes I hear what's on, I'm thinking, bro, wow, I need to pray for you. Although Jesus had cleansed the temple three years earlier, it had become more corrupt and profane than ever. And Jesus comes into the temple. We know that before he made a whip of cords and he started flipping tables. Can you imagine Jesus coming in to a church and flipping tables? 
People often say, well, Jesus wouldn't do that. Have you read the Bible? <laughs> Again, he's doing it because of his love. It breaks his heart to see those very ones who've been given the truth, rejecting it and turning his father's house into a den of thieves. Lord, help us to never allow your house to become anything other than a place where your name is magnified, glorified, and lifted up. Now notice what he says. Saying to them, it is written, my house is a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. You know what they were doing? When people were coming up to make sacrifice, they would take advantage of them. People would travel a far distance, and they would need a lamb or a goat or whatever it might be. If they're really poor, it would be birds that they would use. And they would come in to buy them, and they, would take, they had a way of getting kickbacks from the temple priest to where often when people would bring their own animal, the priest would reject the animal and make them go buy one from these guys, which they would then sell at four or five times what they were really worth. And so they were fleecing the people and causing people to be grieved. They didn't even want to go to church. You know, they didn't want to come to the temple anymore. They didn't want to come make sacrifices anymore. Every time I go there, I get ripped off. Boy, does that sound familiar. People don't want to go to church because they see the way that it's been abused and it's been all about money and it breaks the heart of God. But notice what the, the church should be. My house. Now, I love this. My house. Who's saying this? Jesus. Whose house is this? It's the Lord's house. And he says, it shall be a house of prayer. You want to see revival? Pray. You want to experience spiritual intimacy with the creator of the universe? Pray. You want to know God's will for your life? Pray. You want to be an effective tool for the kingdom of God? Pray. You want Calvary Chapel to make an impact on Santa Cruz? Pray. You want to see the lost saved? Pray. Now let me encourage you. Tonight we're having a time of prayer and worship. And we have prayer time in the small groups. And I don't want to force anything on you you don't want. But let me encourage you. We're going to get together tonight and worship the creator of the universe and pray. Amen. Let me encourage you to come. If you're not here, you're a backslider, but that's all right. <laughs> but I want to say this. True prayer is an evidence of our dependence upon God. Amen? Amen. If, we, if you really believed he was listening, wouldn't you pray more? Amen. If he showed up at your house and sat down at your kitchen table and said, okay, come sit down, share your heart with me. Do you think there would be anything more important than that? Well, well Lord, I was going to, but I'm on my way to a movie, so I, maybe when I get back. That would not happen. Your day would change, amen? Your schedule would change. Your priorities would change. You'd sit down and, and when it was time, don't, don't go, stay, stay. Lord, don't, just stay here. Guys, he wants to have that intimacy with us, amen? Turn his father's house into a house of prayer, not a den of thieves. Then it says, last couple of verses, and when he was teaching daily in the temple, he was teaching daily in the temple, but the chief priest, the scribes, and the leaders of the people sought to destroy him. And were unable to do anything, for all the people were very attentive to hear him. The religious leaders of the day wanted to destroy Jesus. The religious leaders of today are no different. Guys, when we are confronted with sin, we can do one of three things. We can make excuses, we can accuse others, or we can repent. These Pharisees liked their gig of being the spiritual leaders where everybody turned to them for guidance. Jesus came along, started performing miracles that was the fulfillment of everything, and rather than bowing to Him, they were competing with Him. Guys, don't compete with the Lord. Bow to Him. 
Don't try to be on the throne that only belongs to him. He alone is God. All the people were attentive to hear him. It says in Mark, And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught as one having authority, not as the scribes. These are the people that want to, right here, are trying to get after him, and they speak, and there's no authority. And guys, there are so many who speak today, and the words have no authority and no meaning. You know why? Because the Holy Spirit is not speaking through them. The Word of God is always the acid test for, for words any man speaks. Amen? Check, check it all against the Word of God. The scribes taught their opinions, and Jesus taught the truth of God's Word. So, in closing, the heart of our Savior... He faithfully obeys the Father's will. He's in, he enters in faithfully and obediently, even though he knew what laid before him. He knew betrayal was in front of him. He knew abandonment was in front of him. He knew suffering was in front of him. He knew that scourging, he knew that the cross, he knew separation from the Father. He knew the sins of all mankind were about to be placed upon him, and he went anyway. Why? Because he loves you. You know how you determine the value of something? By what somebody is willing to pay for it. How valuable are you to God? This is how valuable. Amen? He'd rather die than live without. You are His treasured possession. Secondly, He weeps for the lost. You know what? May we learn a lesson from this. May we weep for men like the man who wrote this article. Instead of being annoyed by them, let's weep for them. And let's pray that God would open their eyes. May we see the loss through our Savior's eyes. Instead of being arrogant, or instead of being self-righteous, guys, we have nothing to be arrogant or self-righteous about. Amen? Amen. That was kind of weak, actually. Amen. We have nothing. But you know what? He's a great and awesome God. And He deserves all the glory and all the honor and all the praise. And as He weeps for the loss, so too should we. And then lastly, He deals harshly with hypocrisy. Guys, May we not be hypocrites. What is a hypocrite? Someone who wears a mask. Someone who pretends to be something that they're not. Guys, let's quit pretending to be Christians and start living like it. Let's quit being Christians three or four hours a week. And let's be one 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Let's say, Lord, I want more than the get out of hell free card. I want to, go, I want to, I want to walk with you every single step of the day. I want to give you my every breath. Everything I have is yours, Lord. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, we praise you, and we worship you. You are indeed a great and awesome God. Lord, we know that nobody is here by chance. You brought us all here by divine appointment. Lord, I ask in Jesus' name, if there's even one person here who doesn't know you, that right now you would open their eyes to the truth of who you are. Lord, as you hung on a cross for them, may they openly confess their need for you. So if you're here today, and you do not know Jesus Christ. You have not prayed and asked Him to come into your life. And I don't mean pray a prayer and live the old life anymore. But truly make Him Lord. Not just Savior, but Lord. All you're doing is first realizing you're a sinner, confessing your sin, and asking Him to be your Savior. Realizing your desperate need for Him. Not saying, I'm going to give God a try. But saying, I need Him. Because I am a sinner separated from God. All, the Bible tells us in Romans, if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, you will be saved to the glory of the Father. Guys, today is the day of salvation. You're not here by chance. Just like 173,888 880 days was foreordained, God foreordained you to be sitting in that chair right now. 
And he knew it before the foundation of the world. And right now he's reaching out to you in love saying, be my child, I love you. Be adopted into my family. Be my son, be my daughter. Inherit eternal life. Allow me to rule and reign in your life. And you know what? While he reaches out and salvation is offered universally, it must be accepted individually. You cannot force anyone else to be saved. We can't make our kids be saved. We can't make our spouses be saved. So, even if everybody here thinks you're a Christian already, that won't matter when you stand before Almighty God. And so, he's holding out salvation. He's offering it to you. Christians, be praying. If you're here today, and you've never given your life to Jesus Christ, never truly made Him Lord of your life, and it's your desire to walk out of here knowing for sure you're going to heaven, that you've been born again, to have Him rule and reign in your life from this day forward, to be a new creation in Christ. If that's your desire, I'm going to ask you to do something really simple. Just raise your hand so I can pray with you. Is there anybody here at all? Today's the day of salvation. Don't leave here without it. Anybody at all. God bless you. Anybody else? The Bible says, if you confess me before men, I'll confess you before my Father in heaven. If you deny me before men, I will deny you before my Father in heaven. Anybody else? Today is it, God bless you. Anybody else? I'm not asking you to join a church. Give your life to Jesus Christ. Anybody else? Heavenly Father, we come before you, and I just thank you and praise you for these who have raised their hands. And Lord, I pray that even right now, they would just repeat in their own heart these simple words. Dear Heavenly Father, I come to you this morning, and I confess that I'm a sinner. Lord, I ask you to forgive me to fill me with your Holy Spirit. I believe that Jesus Christ is God. That He died on the cross for my sin. That He rose from the dead. Help me to walk with You. Thank You, Lord. I believe that I've been forgiven. In Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Hey, if you raise your hand, or even if you did not, after this last worship song, there'll be pastors up here to pray with you. We're not, we don't want anything from you, I promise. But let me tell you this. The Bible says when one person is saved, that all the angels in heaven rejoice. So that means there's a party up in heaven. Amen? Let's stand and close the worship song.